0: I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11, this second letter to the churches located there in Asia Minor. It's a reminder that John has been commissioned by Christ to write these letters to the seven churches at the end of the first century. And he writes, addresses... um, or what he writes, addresses those, the specific needs within those churches. Uh, but Jesus also has in mind the broader universal church, and that's very clear from the opening of Revelation, right, that he is speaking to all of us in every time and place, anyone who has ears to hear. Uh, the Lord is informing the churches of, of persecution that they will face. So maybe you've picked up on that theme already. Uh, in the songs we've sung, in the prayer, um, we're considering here the the persecution that we face as believers. Some of that tribulation had already begun within the the context of these churches. They had already faced some form of tribulation, but a more intense form was beginning was going to begin shortly, and in fact, it would continue throughout this present age, until Christ returns. The first letter was written to Ephesus, a church that was faithful in doctrine, but loveless in practice. Uh, This second letter is the shortest, but it's packed with encouragement. There's nothing condemning to the church in Smyrna. That's the same for Philadelphia. These are the only two churches out of the seven that receive only commendation. And both of them, deal or the context of both of those churches was in light of the suffering that they were undergoing. It's almost like the, the suffering purged the dross, purged the sin that they were going that they were going, or that they were un, in, enduring. So Smyrna was uh, along the western coast of Asia Minor, located roughly thirty-five miles north of Ephesus. Uh, they likely heard the gospel through Ephesus. Gospel, the church having been planted there in Ephesus and then evangelists went out into the region of Asia Minor and so more than likely that was how Smyrna heard the gospel. The population there in Smyrna was very similar to Ephesus both are roughly 200,000 at the time. Uh, it's a prosperous city. it was strategically located for trade. it had a land that was very fertile. And that location is now the third largest city in Turkey called Izmir. So it's still a very pop, uh, you know, populated city. Like Ephesus, Smyrna was known for its idolatry and its emperor worship. They suffered from the same things Ephesus did. The city had temples dedicated to several gods, including its own local goddess called Sibyl. Her image was imprinted on their currency. Um, And the city was also proud of being faithful to Rome. Even prior to Rome becoming an established authority in the region, uh, Smyrna had dedicated a temple to the goddess of Rome. So they won favor for their loyalty to Rome. By 26 AD, they made a bid to build a a temple for the Emperor Tiberius, and they won that bid. In fact, this would be the thing that they would point to when they competed for who was the the most loyal to Rome, who was the the best in emperor worship. This is what, how they competed with Ephesus and Pergamum, right? They they would they would talk about how they were the they were loyal before any of them to Rome, right? They have the Emperor of Tiberius that they won in AD 26, so they could point to some things that gave them some preeminence there. But before we read this letter, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can open your word, that we can understand something that was written so long ago that it's been translated for us in our language. And yet, we can also go back and study it in its original form, in its original languages. When we can even look back archaeologically and see places that are described here in these letters. The temples, maybe that still exist in some form today. Lord, it's, it's remarkable to think about. And yet, the letter that was written to them so long ago still has significant meaning for us. And it prepares us for a similar experience. Lord, should we face Suffering in the same way. Or even to a lighter degree. We can look with hope to the same places that you call the Smyrnans to look. So Lord, give us eyes to see this truth. Give us ears to hear it. and Help us to respond in obedience. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, he begins right where we need to begin, right? Who we are in Christ, that that we are hearing from Christ the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are the defining attributes for these saints to live by. It is to be what would cause them to persevere as they prepare to endure their own suffering. Christ is our savior and our example, We look to him for salvation and sanctification. He died for us and he continues to intercede for us, living through us. So if you're following along in your outline, the first section here I wanna look at is a a savior who knows. We have a savior who knows, verse nine. Which is similar to verse two of chapter two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Jesus was, was completely... In the know, he was knowledgeable about what the churches were going through, and he he knew how they were faithful in the face of persecution. He was tending to them. Remember the image. Don't lose the sight of him walking among the lampstands. And he continues to do that today. He continues to preserve his people. And he knows. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're going through. The hardship of believers here in Smyrna, the tribulation and their poverty. Jesus understood it. What they were experiencing was in contrast to the success of that city. Uh, This may indicate that the economic persecution upon the church was a direct result of their faith. It it seems like the, the economy was so dependent upon emperor worship and idolatry that for the church to refuse to participate in that idolatry, it would have hindered their economic or financial stability. It would have caused them to, walk, to enter into poverty. And so the worship of the emperor was, was intricately related to the commerce in the region. It makes sense that their faith would have a negative impact upon their financial stability, and yet Jesus calls them rich. He says, but you are rich. When our lives are free from the love of money, we can be content with the riches of Christ's presence. As the author of Hebrews puts it in thir- Hebrews 13, 5, when we, are, when we hold our possessions lightly, we can joyfully endure the plundering of our property, which is probably what was taking place here. Right, as they're being persecuted, their things are being stolen, they're, they're being um, slandered. We'll see later. This is the example of, the, of what the Macedonians experienced, right? They had extreme poverty, and yet Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8, commends them. He says, because in their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In their poverty... They became generous. It overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Missionaries to third world countries frequently attest to that spiritual strength of the physically poor. And in fact, you can become envious when you go and see their joy with such little in terms of possessions. It makes us long for their joy and their contentment and to abandon our own need for material possessions. And yet this is consistently under attack today from those who preach the false prosperity gospel. If you're not familiar with that, advocates of this heresy preach that economic and physical health are the result of little faith, that your faith is simply not strong enough. That's why you suffer. That's why you're going through pain. That's why, you have, that's why you're sick. That's why you don't have money. It's because your faith is too small. If you would just trust God and give me your money, then you'll have more. That's, that's the message you hear from their heresy, that those who possess a strong faith will never be poor or sick. So were Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar to go back in time and visit the Christians in Smyrna, they would have had a hard time condemning them for their lack of faith they would have been completely contradicting what Jesus is saying here. Instead of condemnation, Jesus commends them for being spiritually rich. Right, they may be economically deprived, but they possess riches beyond comprehension. And so it, it isn't surprising that the devil would plant enemies here to attack the church in Smyrna. And that's what he says here, uh, um, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So this refers to Jews. It refers to Jews who had rejected the Messiah. It's not enough to be circumcised. A true Jew had the inward faith that corresponds with their outward association with God. This is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29. They they say that they are Jews, but they're they're not true Jews. They're not true Israel. They haven't been circumcised in the heart. They have rejected the Messiah. How can they be? So these Jews were, were considered imposters of worship. Similar language is, was found in the Qumran scrolls with reference to apostate or hypocritical Jews who had abandoned fundamental doctrine, calling them synagogues of Satan. And so this phrase would have probably been familiar to them. But this is coming from the Messiah. This is coming from Christ. So William Hendrickson comments, on this, He says, how anyone can say that the Jews of today are still in a very special and glorious and preeminent sense God's people is more than we can understand. God himself calls those who reject the Savior and persecute true believers the synagogue of Satan. They are no longer his people. Yes, that's harsh. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And yet today we have so many Christians who think that there's a special they're in a special category to be set apart and and, and preserved even though they've rejected their god. And they've begun to slander the church. Slander involves the improper use of our tongue to share evil reports. It's gossip and lies that are meant to speak evil of others. So these false Jews were making malicious accusations against Christians in Smyrna. They were stirring up strife and seeking to defame believers. Uh, Emperor worship was not enforced for Jews. They were exempt from it. And so they wanted to make a very clear distinction from Christians because they wanted Christians to be persecuted, but they, they... wanted to maintain their religious freedom. And since early on, there was an association between Jews and Christians, Jews decided we need to begin to persecute the Christians very outrightly, very forthrightly. We need to start condemning them, making false accusations, start slandering them to Rome so that they will be persecuted. And that's what's taking place here. But doing so... Right? By, by cutting off Christians from their religious freedom, Jews were cutting themselves off from their true Messiah. They were cutting themselves off from the gospel. And so it's possible that the, the very present uh, persecution that was happening in Smyrna and as well the tribulation that was about to come was the result of these accusations that were, were being made against them. Maybe they were, they were the ones stirring up the rumors that, that you read about in the early church fathers that they were cannibals because they talk about eating the flesh of the Messiah in the Lord's Supper or of drowning their babies in baptism. And these, were the, these were the rumors that were spread about Christians. And so Peter does talk about them having to be able, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that was in them. Peter was writing some 30 years prior to this letter to the same Christians, believers in Asia Minor, telling them, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. They were to testify with gentleness and respect so that their slanderers, slandering was already happening 30 years prior, so that their slanderers might be put to shame. Their response was to be Christ-like. So, Paul would point to the poverty of Christ in his humanity, right? Who brought riches to the Corinthian believers. We learn from the way Christ endured suffering. He didn't sin with deceit or retaliation, but entrusted himself to a sovereign God. 1 Peter 2, chapter 20. I mean, 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 23. So as much as we should expect to experience persecution, we should be all the more confident that the Lord will never forsake us. Yes, we will have to endure tribulation. We will suffer. And as, as Matt pointed out in Sunday school, that, that's gonna be in degrees depending on where we are. Some Christians will suffer much more than others and we may never face martyrdom as many in the faith do. But regardless of the degree of our suffering, we know that the Lord will never forsake us. Even when our enemies are rejoicing at our calamity, we can look up to the Lord. We can wait on him knowing that he hears us and that he takes care of us. So when you're faced with the, the hatred of your enemies, remember that the Lord delights in you. Listen to this promise from Psalm, Psalm 18. Verses uh, 17 through 19. He rescued me from my strong enemy. It's the Psalm of David. Um, And in fact, the the prologue says, to the choirmaster, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so he's, been rescued now, and this is his song to the Lord. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's what causes us to persevere, to know that the Lord delights in us, not based upon our suffering. We don't look at our suffering and circumstances and say, the Lord must be angry with me, or my faith must be weak. It reminds us to look to him who rescues us and know that he delights in us, even when we're in the midst of our enemies. So because Jesus knows our suffering, he is uniquely capable of bringing us comfort. He's a savior who comforts. That's the second point here. A savior who knows us and then a savior who comforts. He first of all comforts us by saying, do not fear. We can be confident in the Lord that he will protect us from evil men. It is the perfect love of the Lord that casts out fear. So the Old Testament allusion here is once again to the book of Daniel in verse 10, it says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. That idea of 10 days of of a trial or 10 days of testing comes from Daniel and their, their test, that dietary test that lasted 10 days. Daniel encouraged the steward that had been assigned to him to test him and his friends for 10 days to see if their diet would have any negative impact upon their appearance. And if it did, then they would submit to eating the king's diet. But they wanted nothing to do with the idolatrous practices there in Babylon. And so they take this test. The steward allows them to, to uh, have a diet of, that consisted of water and vegetables for 10 days. And ultimately, this would have encouraged the saints in, um, in Smyrna, would have been a reminder to them that their suffering would be relatively short, that it, would, that it would be a brief period of time. It says 10 days. Now, it's likely symbolic, but it's a brief, definite period of time. That doesn't mean, however, that their suffering would be easy to bear. In fact, it warns there of future imprisonment. Be faithful unto death. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So Roman prisons were not used as places for long-term punishment. Uh, they were utilized as temporary holding places while a person awaited either their trial or their execution. So if, if you landed in prison, it was, it, oftentimes you were already treated as dead. You were treated as guilty. Um, the places were, were actually made out of what originally were, were made to be cisterns, and they would create a, a hole in the, in the ground and lower prisoners into that cistern, right? So they couldn't escape. And there would be obviously overcrowding. It would be filthy and disgusting, And so it appears that their imprisonment here will will only last a short time. Some of them will be released, but the experience would be harrowing for harrowing for some, and some of them would be martyred for their faith. But Wilcox says this there would be or there would in the goodness of God come an eleventh day and all would be over. That's the the hope by, by giving it an established time frame there. They knew that the end was coming. Peter had encouraged them to resist the devil, knowing that a brotherhood of saints suffer all around the world. And so in the midst of their own suffering, they could be reminded of that, that saints are suffering everywhere and continuing to be strengthened by Christ. And that encouragement is just as important for us to hear today. We need to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters. Christians will be hated and persecuted, but our fear should not be in man who can only do physical harm. And nor should we fear Satan because he is ultimately restricted by God's sovereign purposes. And so although the devil seeks to destroy our faith, the Lord uses his attacks to purge and to purify his people. Those who persevere under trial prove the genuineness of their faith in the one who was victorious over sin and death. Not only do we receive comfort, but faithful believers are also promised reward. You have that in verses 10b through 11. So a Savior who who knows, a Savior who comforts, and a Savior who rewards. He promises the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the crown of life is promised to all who remain faithful here. There are several types of crowns that would have probably been in the minds of of the original audience here as they were reading because the, the athletic games that you think of, the Olympic games, on Mount Olympus. Well, those were also popular in Smyrna. They had their own athletic games where crowns were perishable wreaths placed on the heads of, the, of the, those who won the competition. But more often than not, the, the crowns that are referred to in Scripture, often re- they refer to kings and royalty. So various fabrics and metals were used to embellish the crowns with color and style. Kings often had several crowns, several different crowns, representing the various countries that they had conquered. So they could exchange their crowns. You'll have the same king with, with, with different, you know, portrayed differently depending on, on the crown he was wearing. Well, Sybil, the goddess of Smyrna, as I've already mentioned, was depicted with a crown. And that crown was decorated in the shape and fashion of the city's buildings, and so, it's, so it, it all represented their worship of Sybil, right? Their coins that were embossed with her image had, had this picture of, of her crown on her head, and that crown looked like the city landscape. So most likely that's in view here. Believers are, are promised something far better than any of these crowns, whether it's the athletic crown that that he has in mind here or the crown uh, of royalty. Believers are promised to receive an unfading crown of glory, a crown that is imperishable. Their crown of righteousness is rewarded to them by their righteous judge. This crown is a, a metaphor for eternal life. Everyone who perseveres to the end will receive eternal life. That, that's reiterated in verse 11. The, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. But for some, it will cost their present lives. Polycarp was a student of John. And in fact, he might have been in the congregation when this letter was being originally read. He would have been 27 years old at the time. He may have also been the bishop, depending on when John, uh, tradition says John consecrated him as the bishop in Smyrna. We know after John's release from uh, the island of Patmos, he only lived another year. So before the age of 28, uh, Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna. So it seems like if that, if tradition is true then it seems likely that he might have been the one reading this very letter. He's the, he's the one who's, who's reading as Revelation 1-3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. That's a reference to the, the pastor of that church reading aloud the letter to the congregation. So it's a good chance that Polycarp was reading this himself. On February 23rd, AD 156, some 60 years after this letter was received, Polycarp was sentenced to be burned at the stake for refusing to recant his faith in Christ. Again, those involved in his death were the Jewish slanderers, the Jewish enemies. They themselves were willing to violate the Sabbath in order to collect wood for the fire that would be used to burn polycarp in the amphitheater. He was led there to be executed in front of thousands, and then he was given another opportunity to recant. But instead of declaring Caesar is Lord, he said this, 80 and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And as they lit the wood, the winds, in fact, prevented the fires from burning hot enough. So they would have been torturous, but it wasn't hot enough to kill him. So he used the time to proclaim the gospel. And as he continued to proclaim the gospel, a soldier finally just got tired of hearing him and thrust a sword into his side, which both put him out of his immediate misery and ushered him into eternal glory. In that instant, Polycarp entered into an eternity whose glory far outweighed his suffering, regardless of how excruciating it was. And so believers are never promised to escape earthly suffering. Believers are never promised to escape earthly suffering or to be raptured out of it. In fact, the crown of glory always seems to follow the crown of suffering. That's the pattern we should expect. And even if our body is perishing, we can be confident that God is preserving our souls. So he who has an ear, let him hear. All believers are addressed by this letter. If we have received the Spirit, then we are able to hear what he is saying to us. And the conquerors will not suffer the punishment of hell. That's what the second death is. Second death is a reference to hell. You'll see that very clearly in Revelation chapter 20 where it's called the lake of fire, where death and Hades are thrown along with all who do not repent. Again, during his execution, Polycarp said this, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, but you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. It was an important warning, not only to those who were directly responsible for putting him to death, but for all all in attendance, who could hear him declare the gospel of grace. But should they reject that gospel, they would be punished for eternity. Because Jesus conquered death in his resurrection, we can face death just like Polycarp did, as conquerors, knowing that he loves us and promises that nothing can ever separate us from him. neither death nor tribulation. Do not fear the consequences of suffering which cannot remove the future reward of the faithful. The Lord is reigning even now and he will continue to reign until all his enemies are under his feet. The same power that enables Christ to subject all things to himself will also transform our bodies to be glorified like his at the resurrection on the last day. Until then, We should expect suffering, and we should know that our trials are preparing us for an eternity in glory. Let's pray.